Now, if you're new visiting us, hanging out this morning with us, and you haven't been with us before, you're in luck. We are starting a new series. We're leaning into the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're calling it Messy Church, Merciful God. Right? Because if you've been around church for a while, if you're a human being and you've gathered with other human beings, you know that when you gather with other human beings, it's always a little bit messy. Right? Church is no exception there. The difference in a church, right, is that we are here trying to worship a merciful God who wants to meet us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our life, and be with us. Now, we're going to be leaning into 1 Corinthians, but the thing about the letters in the New Testament, the letters of Paul, and particularly in 1 Corinthians, right, is that we are literally reading someone else's mail. Like, literally. I would like you to think of a time, I don't know, did you ever have a season where you wrote a letter to someone? Maybe you're in the middle of a family conflict, maybe it's a love letter, whatever. Now imagine someone else intercepts that letter but doesn't know you or the recipient. But see, one of the things about letters is there's all kinds of background relationships. There's all kinds of assumptions that you bring when you write a letter to someone. Now if someone else intercepts that letter, they don't know all that background info. They don't know all those little pieces in the background, right, that make sense of the relationship, that make the context of that letter real. So what I want to do this morning is not just jump into Paul's letter to the Corinthians, pretending like we know Paul and the Corinthians, and just start making stuff up, right? Because we don't know all the context. What we want to do this morning, this morning we want to take a look at who is Paul, Right? He's the guy who wrote the letter. So before we dive into 1 Corinthians 1.1, we're going to take this Sunday and look at the person of Paul, the writer. Now next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Acts 18. This is a third-person account of Paul's interactions in Corinth. So what we'll get to see is not only who is Paul, but more than that, like what does someone else have to say about how Paul interacts with the Corinthians before we dive into 1.1 to give us a little context, a little foundation. Make sense? All right, so who is Paul? I want to tackle this in two parts. Part is sort of Paul in the past. So who, what, let's a little bit about Paul's past, and then I want to look at Paul's life after his encounter with God on the road to Damascus. All right, so who is Paul? Let's look at his past. First thing is this. We don't know exactly when he was born. People presume he was born about the time of Jesus, so around the turn of, I don't know, 81, somewhere around that time. Now, we know where he's born, though. We know he is born in a place called Tarsus. Now, for you, you're like, where is Tarsus? Well, good thing I have a map. Um, so that's modern-day Turkey. So if you go down to kind of the bottom right-ish area, Tarsus by Antioch. Now, Tarsus is an interesting place. So at that time, maybe you've heard of like the schools of Alexandria, uh, Athens, those kind of places. Right? Actually, the university town at Tarsus probably excelled both of those academically at this time. So this is a robust university town with some really bright people. And this is where Paul is raised. Now, he's also born a Roman citizen, which is a really big deal. People would pay all kinds of money to become a Roman citizen. Now, I'm going to do a little doodle demonstration to illustrate why. All right. So, there are a few reasons you want to be a Roman citizen. Now, if you're walking down the street and a Roman guard decides, all right, you're not a Roman citizen, I'm going to imprison you, 
right? So you can do that. You're imprisoned. You can do nothing about it. No trial, not much going on, you're just imprisoned. If you're a Roman citizen, though, nope. You can't be thrown in jail without some sort of process. Oh, torture. Okay, yeah, if you're not a Roman citizen, yep. At the Roman guard's whim. Oh, you're a Roman citizen? Nope, can't do it. Now you're walking through the streets, and someone says, you know what, I really want to beat this guy. Yep, you can do it. But if you're a Roman citizen, nope. Now you might be wondering, right? Well, what about execution? Surely they can't execute someone without a real trial. Yep, right? Not a Roman citizen? We've seen that play out in the New Testament if you read the Gospels. But if you are a Roman citizen, right, you can't do that. There's all kinds of benefits to being a Roman citizen. This is why, right, when Paul is going throughout the Mediterranean world, sharing about Jesus, his Roman citizenship comes up so much. This is why people spend all kinds of money so that they can't be imprisoned, tortured, beaten, or executed at the whim of someone else. Pretty nice perk, right? If I was going to be born a Roman citizen, I would definitely say yes. What else about Paul? One of the things we know about Paul's early life, he describes about himself and his commitment to his Jewish faith. He says this in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now this word advancing in Greek is a really interesting one. So in Greek, it originally, its original context was a nautical term. So it's the way a ship would go into the wind. Right? And they would make progress into the wind. In first century Rome, it dealt with sort of moral and spiritual development. So what Paul is saying is he is growing, he is advancing, developing spiritually at a rate that is faster than all of his peers. Right? He is rocking it. People looked at Paul and was like, that guy's going somewhere. And he also says why. He says he is extremely zealous. Actually, this word, zealitos, this is the actual word where we get zeal, right? So Paul is zealous, but he's not just zealous. He's extremely zealous. Over and above, exuberantly jealous. And for what? He calls it the traditions of his fathers. Now, a little history, right? The Jewish people are exiled like five or six hundred years before this. And they, their temple is destroyed, all this. So they develop this new system of connecting with God through the, they call them like synagogues and these local spaces, right? Because they're in exile. Ezra comes back and they develop this whole system of interpretation. How do they understand the Old Testament? This is captured in the Mishnah, the Gemaras, and the Targum. Now you don't need to memorize those names. There's no quiz later. But the point is this. Paul has been steeped in the understanding of the Old Testament interpreted by these guys looking back over the last four or five hundred years. And Paul is deeply, deeply committed to this interpretation. And there's a reason for this. See, the thing is, if you were in the, you know, if you were in the ancient world, and imagine advertising. So, like, advertising in our world is like this, right? So it's like, new and improved, Right? You want to sell soap, you're like, this is the best soap ever. We've made it better than every previous soap ever made. Right? That's how you're going to sell something. In the ancient world, you would literally never say that. 
Never. What you would say is this. We're selling soap. It's been unchanged for centuries. If you wanted to be a wise person in the ancient world, what you did was look back. And you said, all right, man, this soap, oh, this soup has been, soap has been cleaning people all over Asia Minor. It has been cleaning them in the same way it is dependable. So what does Paul do? He's steeped in the traditions of his fathers. Right? What does he do? He looks back. He looks back and says, oh, I've got to learn all these interpretations. These interpretations of the Old Testament have shaped all of my, the people that have come before me. I am going to follow in their footsteps because that is wisdom. So then it maybe makes a little bit of sense. Paul is extremely zealous for these traditions. Then when there's this little upstart Jesus Jewish movement happening in Galilee that makes it into Jerusalem, that Paul says, no, no, no. Like, we're not doing this. And he's not some backwoods guy who doesn't understand things. Right? Paul is raised in Tarsus, university city. Right? Paul is super zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He is discipled by this guy named Gamaliel, who is one of the most robust and best teachers of that age. Right? It's kind of like being discipled by Gamaliel is like getting your PhD at Harvard. He has gone through all the tracks, right? He has become, adopted the strictest of his religious sect, right? The Pharisees. So it shouldn't surprise us that when Paul encounters this upstart movement happening in Palestine, that Paul says this, Acts 9-1, right? He is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Right? They're departing from the ancient wisdom. They are departing from the traditions. They are going the wrong way. You've got to put a stop to them. And Paul is zealous, extremely zealous. So it makes sense what he is doing. Specifically, he persecutes the church in and around Judea. Uh, he's there when the first martyr, Stephen, is killed. And one of the justifications they give is this that Stephen and his little band of Jesus followers are trying to change the customs of Moses handed down to us. We have our traditions. They're set. These guys are trying to change it. So Paul, he decides, you know what? I'm going to go ask for permission to eradicate this group. Hey, let me, let me and these guys, we're zealous. Let us go up to Damascus and we'll put a stop to this. Now, Damascus, just a little bit of uh, historical fact. So Damascus is about 173-ish, depending on your route, miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on the very bottom on the left. Damascus is up towards Syria, you see there? So you have to kind of go up through uh, along the Jordan River, past the Sea of Galilee, and up there. So imagine that's like being on a horse or walking from here to Stockton or Sacramento, something like that. This is not like popping in next door. This is a big trip. And it's on this trip that the encounter Paul has with God that changes his life. This is how it's recorded in the book of Acts. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
All right. So Paul assumes that he is persecuting. He's trying to eradicate this, this group of people that are departing from the traditions of his fathers. Now, Luke gives us a few clues in this text about what's going on. One, he says, right, Paul's on this journey. He's nearly to Damascus, so he's gone 100 plus miles. Then what happens? There is a bright light from where? Heaven. Heaven is shorthand from, for, there's a bright light coming from God, the presence of God. What does a bright light coming from the presence of God mean? The glory and presence of God is there. It's there so much, Paul gets knocked off his horse and he lands in the sand. He hasn't opened his eyes at this point, so he's kind of like this. He's like, Who are you? And he learns in this moment that the voice speaking from the glory of God is who? Jesus. Paul has a posse of people that he is going up to Damascus to really wipe them out. And guess what he realizes in this moment? Jesus, who he thought was sort of a drifting rabbi trying to distract the Jewish people from what was most important, is actually the voice speaking from the glory of God in heaven. Uh-oh. He realized this Jesus, who was crucified, actually is resurrected. And this Jesus, who actually is resurrected, has ascended to the right hand of God and is now speaking to him in such a powerful way, he's knocked off his horse, falls in the sand, and needs to get hit, led by the hand to this guy named Ananias in the city of Damascus. Now, certain, what's really important to realize in this moment is Paul never wanted to be a Christian. Paul wasn't sort of thinking, oh, I hope one day I'm convinced. <laughs> Paul did not want to. The only reason Paul falls down on the ground before God is because he's knocked off his horse by the glory of God. Paul does not want to be his Christian. He says this in Philippians. Philippians 3 tells that he was apprehended by Christ. He took me. He grabbed me. What could I do? He's apprehended by Christ. And he starts to quickly realize this is not a personal experience for him to just journal about. This is experience that has universal implications that he needs to share about. Specifically, I want to say three things in particular Paul realizes in this moment and shortly after. First, his understanding of Jesus radically changes. Right? He thought Jesus was maybe this upstart rabbi leading these people astray, right? We're supposed to be dedicated to the Mishnah and the Gemara, right? We're supposed to really saturate ourselves in the Targum. And what happens? He realizes that Jesus is actually the voice speaking from the right hand of the Father in the glory of God. And he says, I've totally made a mistake. Jesus is way more than I ever thought was possible. Two, he realizes that his understanding of the scripture was funky. Right? He was basing so much of who he was right, in these traditions established by his fathers, and he realizes when he goes back to the Old Testament, we'll see this peppered throughout 1 Corinthians, oh my gosh, Jesus is written throughout in the Old Testament. He's anticipated. He's alluded to. And when he starts to read the Old Testament, he starts to see, my interpretations were totally off. Three, his self-understanding radically shifts. And he goes from a guy who's like, I am going to eradicate this church to an apostle sent by Jesus in the world to share about Jesus and his people. 
So almost immediately, right, Paul senses this invitation. What does he do? He gets into Damascus. He starts teaching about Jesus. But the thing is, right, he wasn't the only guy on this 175-mile journey up to Damascus. There's other people with him. Right? They take him to Ananias. And almost immediately, he starts teaching about Jesus. Then what happens? They try and kill him. Almost immediately. So what does he do? Right? He's lowered down by a basket over the wall of Damascus to escape. Over the next weeks and months and years, Paul gets to know this early Christian community in Jerusalem and Antioch. He again makes friends right, with this guy named Barnabas in particular, and they start doing these travels throughout the ancient world. A lot of scholars think there's three in particular. The first is uh, this one. Basically, if you can see this, it starts at Antioch, goes through Cyprus, and then goes up into Turkey a little bit, pops back over, and then kind of reverses its steps. Right? Shortest journey. I'm not going to get into all of these, but just give you a little sense. His second journey is a little different. So his second journey starts uh, down in, like, the Damascus area, goes up, or in Antioch, goes up all the way through Turkey, and now he hits into Greece. So now he's going through upper Greece, right, comes down, and this is where he hits Corinth. Corinth is, is over on the far left. You can't really see it on this map. We'll zoom in next week to exactly where Corinth is. But it's a second mission, or missionary journey that Paul makes it to Corinth. Right? Then he comes back down. The third journey is very similar to this one. Goes up at Antioch, goes all the way around, hits Corinth again. Right? Comes back around, and this is the time we'll end up in Jerusalem, and after that he'll end up uh, over in Rome. The Rome, Rome section's not on there. Now, on all of these journeys, what's important to realize is a few things. One, Paul faces unbelievable opposition. Right? This is where the Roman citizenship thing becomes really important. The thing that's funny about Paul, though, is that like, if, I'm, if I have Roman citizenship, right, and I'm doing all these travels and they're super dangerous, I would tell people when I went into a town, I am a Roman citizen. Like, duh, right? Paul waits to get beaten, imprisoned, all these things happen to him, and then he's like, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Which sets up all these crazy experiences that people have of God. Paul's beaten multiple times, he's flogged, he's imprisoned, he's shipwrecked. He faces dangers, crossing, imagine crossing like roaring rivers, right? Paul is going through all of these places, nearly killed all, so many times. But because he has this experience of the presence of God, he is like on fire. He will risk anything to make Jesus known. Now as he's going... What we also see is that he tries to make a living, right? There's not like churches that can necessarily support him at the beginning. So he tries to make a living. And what he is is a tent maker. Now there's tent makers uh, in Tarsus. Likely Paul's family is connected to them, though we don't know. Uh, it's interesting. There's this plant called Cilicium that's harvested in Tarsus uh, that when you combine it with goat hair, you makes these awesome tents for cold weather. So likely... Paul learned this trade when he was in Tarsus. Could have made leather tents, could have made linen, we don't know, but that's most likely what he was doing. So he's doing that to make money, and as he's going, he's writing these letters. Right? So he's meeting these churches, he's discipling people, and then he writes these letters throughout these journeys and this process. 
trying to help pass on who is Jesus? What does it look like to follow him? F.F. Bruce has this comment. He says this, Of all the New Testament authors, Paul is the one who has stamped his own personality most unmistakably on his writings. Why is that? He's not writing theological treatises. He is writing a letter between people that he has lived with, right? With Corinth, he's been there 18 months. He's been there a time. He's gotten to know these people. He's lived with them. He's discipled them. And he's writing these letters saying, Hey, guys, think about this. Make this change. This is who God is. And one of the things we say, see really just strong through Paul is this emphasis on his zeal, right, and his righteousness. And he's saying, hey guys, we need to be righteous before God. And you see this throughout all of his letters. You also see this unbelievable focus on grace. Right? Paul knows he's persecuting the church. The only reason he is this apostle is because God knocked him off his horse. He claims no credit. And you see this through, this push between Paul's zeal, right, which we see in his early life, and, right, this push towards grace because it's all about God's presence knocking him off this horse and aligning him with the mission of God in the world. Now, as he's doing these journeys, right, he's on these journeys, he's writing letters, he's ministering to people, the church spreads at an unbelievable rate. You have to remember, Christianity started in a little town little area in Galilee, its primary leader spoke Aramaic. Right, within one generation, there's all kinds of churches that are forming in the Greco-Roman world. The primary language is Greek. And it's within a generation, the Romans think of Christianity as a Gentile religion. Almost all of that is because of Paul and what God does through Paul in that first century. Paul's life is actually really incredible. I know this is just a super brief sketch. But I want to do right now is one of our convictions at Wellspring is that we're not here just to accumulate information, right? Quick bios are great, but in the end, it comes down to what does God have to say to us through the life of Paul today? So what I want you to do is this. Take one second, maybe three seconds, maybe four. What is one thing that stands out to you in the life of Paul? What's one thing that stands out to you in the life of Paul? just as I narrated it from what you know. All right, now that's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to someone next to you and tell them what is one thing that stands out to you from the life of Paul. And if there's a person sitting by themselves, loop them in if you have a little trinity. God likes those. Um, so turn, I'm just going to give you like one or two minutes. Loop in one thing that stands out to you and then I'll bring you back. If you haven't switched, make sure to switch. (laughs) 
All right, as the murmurs decrease. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us back. All right. So as I thought about Paul's life this week, um, sorry if you got interrupted. Got to be quick. Yeah. Um, as I thought about Paul's life this week, three things really stood out to me. The first was this. It's connected to Paul's zeal and then our desire. What I found reading the life of Paul is that he sort of mirrors back to me, what do, what do I really want? Right? You see this guy who just goes for it. I mean, his zeal is misdirected at first and then later leads to this unbelievable mission in the world. And when I look at Paul's life, I find myself fairly convicted. Right? When Jesus started calling disciples, he didn't say, hey, follow me. And if you have a moment on Tuesday and Thursday morning, take some time. And on Sunday morning, try and make it a priority to make it, you know? He doesn't say that. He goes to these fishermen, he says, follow me. And what do they do? They drop their nets, they leave all kinds of stuff behind, and they go for it. Right? When Paul gets knocked off his horse, and he's laying on the ground, the glory of God is there. He doesn't think, whoa, that was a cool experience. I'm totally going to journal about it and tell people. <laughs> you know, in our age, I'm, I'm totally going to tweet that. You know, like, done. What does Paul do? Paul gives his whole life. Paul writes this in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. It's like, whoa. That's intense. And that's who Paul is. Paul is if Paul was here today, he'd be like, join me. He once says, he's, he's discipling this guy named Timothy, and he writes this to him. He says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul recognizes, Timothy, I get it. Life is hard. Following Jesus is not easy. You know what you need to do, Timothy? You need to fight. You know, Paul is beaten. Paul is in prison. He never once fights with his hands. But Paul relentlessly fights to know Jesus. And I think he would look at us this morning and he would say something like, I guarantee you there is a path of least resistance that you will be tempted to follow. I guarantee you, you will be tempted to be, a part, to be just a spectator in your life with Jesus and not a participant. You will, be mesmer, you will be sort of captivated by the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. And Paul would look us in the eyes and say, are you willing to fight? Are you willing to fight to know Jesus? Are you willing to fight, not with your hands, but with all of who you are, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection? To be the goodness of his presence in all your everyday life? Are you willing to fight for that? Because Paul, I think, would tell us everything in your life, so much of your life, is going to pull you away from that. And if you are not willing to fight, you're just going to settle into the path of least resistance. That's Paul. Thinking about him this week, I was just so convicted. I remember I was writing this message, and about halfway through one of the messages, I just literally just laid on my floor. I was like, God, just have mercy on me, because my heart is just not like that. 
And just that moment, I was like, God, I just, I need your help. And I just wonder for you, as you come in this morning, you hear about Paul, what is it that you need to fight? Not with your hands, not with your feet, but with all of your spirit, all of your mind, all of your heart. What is the thing that is pulling you away from the presence and the kingdom of God that you need to say, no! One of the things that really helped me this week when I was laying on my face, (laughs) repenting and just sort of trying to be in the presence of Jesus was that in the end, right, Paul's life wasn't saved by his own effort, his intelligence, or his perseverance. In the end, Paul's life was changed by God's presence. Often when I read Paul, I feel sort of bad about myself and I feel like, yeah, I don't... Do I even believe this stuff, right? And then I look at Paul's life and I realize that Paul's life is molded and shaped and propelled by his encounter with the presence of the gracious and good God. It's not like Paul said, you know what, I'm going to get my act together. Like, I'm going to get it together. I'm smart. I'm strong. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to put myself together and I'm going to like get it on, you know. It's like, no, no, that's not what happened. Paul was literally trying to step on and exterminate God's people in the world. What changes it? Not Paul's perseverance, not his zeal, not his effort. It is the glory of God showing up, knocking him on the ground, and then speaking to him and saying, I am Jesus. And then what happens? Jesus says, do this, and he does it, and he does it for the rest of his life. But it is the presence of God that changes everything. I think it's tempting when we look at Paul and as we lean into 1 Corinthians, it's going to be tempting for us to look at our own inadequacies. We're going to be tempted to say, oh man, I'm terrible at this. We're going to get a little Eeyore, you know, that sort of like, you know, we're going to get a little bit of that. I wish I was better at this. I wish I was smarter. I wish I was more disciplined. I wish I was more this. And in the end, when we look at Paul's life, it was not that he was disciplined. It was that God showed up and changed his life. And I guess I just want to say to us, I want to ask, when was the last time you actually were in the presence of Jesus? In my experience, sometimes God shows up when you're not expecting it and knocks you off your horse and you're like, okay, you have my attention. Sometimes that does happen. That's my experience in college. I was not looking for God. God found me and it just rocked me. For the last 20 years, my experience has been a little different. The last 20 years, what I've learned is that God often shows up when we make space for him. That he actually wants us to choose him. And one of the ways we choose him is by creating space to say, God, I'm going to make space just to be with you. As I'm leaning into this new year, there's three things in particular I feel like I need to do. One, I need to have regular spaces where I'm just in the scriptures and reminded of who God is. Two, I need to have space where I'm worshiping him. I have a hard time just sort of like praying out loud and talking with God. So one of the best ways I do is I grab a guitar or sit on a piano and just sing songs. I think Martin Luther said that's praying twice, right? Because you're singing it and praying it at the same time. And it's like, there's something to me that happens to me 
when I just worship God? And two, I need space for silence. Or three, I need space for silence. Just slowing down and just attending to the good, gracious presence of God. And when I do that, I find God shows up in cool ways. So that my life with Jesus is not founded in my own effort, my own perseverance, and my own zeal, but the transforming grace and presence of God. And I guess I would ask you this morning, what rhythms do you have in place What space are you creating for the presence of God to show up? Sure, God might knock you off your horse. You might be biking and end up on the floor and the glory of God might show up. Totally possible. But I would say, in lieu of that, you can't control that, but what you can control is what you do. And you can create space for Jesus. What would it look like for you to do that as you enter into this new year? The third thing that really challenges me about the life of Paul is Paul's response to God's invitation. It's pretty interesting, right? God invites Paul to share this message throughout the Roman world. He knocks him off his horse and he says, hey, go to Damascus. And he goes, right? He's led by the hand, but he goes. Immediately after that, right, what does he do? He's sharing the gospel in Damascus. Paul knows, right, he is an apostle. He is sent by God to talk about God to anyone who will listen. That is Paul's vocation. That is his response to the invitation of God. Now, vocation uh, is sort of a complex word, but really it has two implications. One, our primary vocation as Christians is to love Jesus and enjoy him. Number one. Number two is in everything else, respond to God's invitation, whether it's in our marriage, in our singleness, in our dating relationship, in our parenting, in our work, whatever it is, what is God inviting you to do and respond with all of who you are in an affirmative saying, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. The thing is, vocation really works out a particular way. Often the way we interpret it is like, you know, you hear a message like this and you go back to your house and you take five minutes during the week and you're like, God, what am I supposed to do with my life? We kind of sit there, shoulders a little slumped like this. I don't know, you know. Well, I guess God didn't speak, you know. And you kind of just go off and do your thing. And I think there's some truth in that because it feels overwhelming. What we see though in the New Testament is discernment is worked out through prayer, those little points, Right? of prayerful listening over a period of time, not one-offs, over a period of time that is also then right, reinforced within community. It's pretty interesting. In Paul's story, what we see this. Paul is in uh, the temple. He's worshiping God. He's praying. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him, says this, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul has a personal experience of God speaking. My guess, this wasn't the only time Paul spoke to God, right? He has a regular practice of doing this. But then what happens? It's reinforced within community. Paul goes on, before Paul goes on his first missionary journey, before he does this, he's in a prayer and fasting time with the church in Antioch. This community of people are listening. God, what do you want us to do? And this is what they hear. Right? The Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Right? So Paul is identified in community 
and sent off. But this reinforces what he experiences in personal prayer. So if we want to be the kind of people who know what God is inviting us to do, we need at least two things. One, we need to be in regular places of creating space for the presence of God so that we can hear him speak. Two, we need to have people around us that are going to be honest with us and tell us, you're out of your mind, or yes, do it. And we often skip that second part. And often, it's inverted. The second part becomes before we actually think we can do it ourselves. People in the community say, I think you can do this. And we're like, I don't know. Sometimes we need the community of God to actually encourage us in order to get to the place where we know what God is calling us to do. So I guess my question to you is this. Do you know God's invitation to you? Do you? If you don't, I would encourage you, start listening. This can be a part of, now loop together all these different strands. How do you fight? How do you contend? How do you seek God's else? Create space for his presence so that he can speak to you and shape and inform how you live your life. Two, you need people to surround you. We cannot do this alone. We cannot fight alone. We cannot create space for God alone. Right? There's all kinds of pressure pushing us away from Jesus, from his kingdom, from his presence. We need to both fight, but we also need people to hold hands with us and say, we will not settle for the path of least resistance. This morning, obviously, we're trying to do a quick bio on Paul so that we can get into 1 Corinthians and like have some sense, but I think I also want us, particularly as we enter worship, to wrestle with what is God wanting to challenge you with through Paul's life? What is God wanting to say to you through the life of Paul that you might follow Jesus more faithfully? That you might give more of who you are to his kingdom? That you might be able to discern how God has shaped and formed you in this world? Now as the worship team comes up, just want to create a little space for us to kind of just be with Jesus and maybe just listen to his voice. Right, God wants to speak to us through the life of Paul, not just so we learn some information, but so that we are shaped and formed into Jesus' image. And I guess I just wonder for you this morning, what is it that gets in the way? Jesus is calling us. He's calling us to himself. He called out to Paul from the heavens. He calls out to you this morning in this place from the pew or the chair next to you. And he says, come to me. All who are tired and weary and I will give you rest. Learn from me. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would speak to us through the life of Paul. Holy Spirit, you would just use Paul almost like to shine a mirror to us that we might see our lives. God, if we see brokenness and sin, that we would repent. God, if we see you just like, go, you know, shouting and encouraging us, we'd be like, woo, and just run with you. God, we want to know you. Jesus, we want our lives to sing of you. what is your invitation to us? We want to like, Paul, we want to respond. We want to fight for your kingdom. We want to fight to know you, God.
We want to be in your presence. We want to experience your grace and your presence with us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts. Convict us. Encourage us. Give us hope. Just have a picture, actually. I was just sort of praying, just a picture of a broken vase. Just have this sense that some of us come in here just totally shattered this morning. And Jesus wants to gather us up and put us back together. Just the broken, broken people we are. We are, it's a messy church, but we serve a merciful God who wants to put us back together and heal us and send us into the world to be his presence of his glory, pointing to him and his goodness in the world.